Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Shapes of Stories podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige. And yeah, it's the last episode of um, of this series, of Series 3, um, as we go into our summer break. And we'll, we will be back in um, September, um, just having a nice little summer break from it. And, um, and hopefully when we come back, it will be normality again, right? <laughs> that's that's the hope. Like, hopefully, you know, with the vaccine rollout and um, everything that's looking promising, hopefully when we're back in September, we'll be able to kind of forget about talking about COVID to some extent. I think every episode I've done as we approach 50 has featured, you know, some talk of COVID in it. And it'd be nice to just kind of get that topic out um, out of, you know, just out of the system now and not something that we kind of have to reflect on um, at all. But yeah, in this episode, um, it's the the best of, the best of the last three series that we've had. Um, we've been lucky to have some amazing guests on. And one of the guests um, we're going to include is our amazing producer, um, Giles Paley Phillips, who, who you know, is the the spine of this show. Without him, that this show doesn't happen. Um He's he's been an amazing. I want to thank him so much for all the work that he's put in from everything. He's pretty much involved in everything, and um, you know I want to thank Giles so much for for his help um, producing the show. And you know we're going to hear from Giles, um, you know about him, his work. He's got an amazing story as well. So um, this best of episode will feature Giles as well, but it's also going to feature some of the amazing guests I've had on and. You know, it's really, really difficult to to um to select to select who to feature because you know I, I don't know if I want I can't feature everyone, um you know but you know there's been some amazing guests that we've had on that we perhaps won't get through but you know it's just a, the case of we trying to balance it out you know like Joe Joyner was amazing her positivity her energy was amazing. Um, Angela Griffin, you know, amazing, Tim Haynes, um, you know, I, I could go on and on and on, but I don't want to keep listing, listing people with the, you know, Ellie Simmons, Becky Adlington, these are just people that have been an absolute pleasure to talk to, but we might not be able to get to them in this podcast episode. And um, But I really urge you to check those episodes out because they've been amazing, um, absolutely amazing. It's just you know, thinking of time, how we're going to fit everyone in. You know, in in this episode, we've been so lucky with guests who we've had on. Um, you know, it's, you're going to have, if you've not heard the podcast before, you know, this is a really good place to start because you're going to hear the best of the best moments and the, the some really, really interesting chats that we've had with some really notable names like Gary Lineker, Eddie Izzard, Sunita, um, Rob Rinder, uh, Nikki Campbell, Jessin Piazzi, Anne Widdicombe, Alistair Campbell, I really enjoyed my chapter with uh, Richard Cadell, who is the um, the owner of Sooty and Sweep. Um, you know, then there's been Ronnie O'Sullivan. And, you know, it's amazing episodes as well um, that we've managed to get through, like Miranda Raisin, Kelly Shirley, Matt D'Angelo. 
and um, probably the most rawest episode that I've done was with Lauren Lefebvre of the Breck Foundation, and her story is just so emotional and is such a, an amazing lady. So they're just some of the names that that you, you'll you be listening to um, on this podcast. Uh, had an absolute blast um, recording every episode. It's been absolutely amazing, and thank you so much, guys, for listening, and you know, I can't wait to be back in September bringing you more episodes and if you could support the show in any way that you can either sharing our stuff or if you're able to support us financially it means so much and helps us helps us bring you um, more episodes going forward as quickly as we can um, you can find out how you can support the show in the description box if you're listening on podcast um, podcast platform but thank you for all the people that are listening whether it be on youtube whether it be on apple whether it be on acast whether it be on Castbox, spotify uh, whatever it is thank you so much and thank you to all the amazing guests we've had on there's not been one um person that i've had on the show and not taken something away from and i could list the whole you know i could list everyone to thank them but would be here it <laughs> would be here for a while um be sure to follow us on twitter you can follow us on um twitter at shapes of stories or follow my personal page at l prestige seven you can follow it you can follow me on instagram under prestige books or my Facebook page, Lawrence Prestige. And we have a Facebook page for the podcast as well, which is The Shapes of Stories. And uh, yeah, guys, without further ado, let's get to it. Should we start with Gary Lineker? Always a good person to start with, right? <laughs> um, here is my chat with Gary Lineker as we go through um, some of the episodes, the best of The Shapes of Stories podcast. So what age was it you started, I guess, being on the books at Leicester when you when you started your footballing career? I was, about, I was spotted when I was about 12 playing yeah. um, local football um, and then I went to train with Leicester so, um, after school on Tuesdays and Thursdays um, until I was about 16. Then I had a trial um, and I was taken on as an apprentice and turned professional when I was 18. So, and yeah, and then... I mean, it was, I never really thought I'd make it, not really. I mean, I loved it, it was a dream and I was driven, but I, you know, I didn't really have that much self-belief. But every level that I got to, I thought this would find me out. But every time I managed to cope and um, still score goals. And that what carried on right through to England, obviously. Yeah. And did, did you, um, did you always think that you might not make it then when you said you weren't sure that if you would make it? Did you oh, think no, that, I was, you... yeah, no, I was never particularly confident um and it's it's funny my dad who passed away um three years ago two or three years ago um i you know we talked a lot in the last three four months of his life because i was up and down to leicester to see him um all the time and um and he'd seen an interview where i talked about the fact that i never really thought you know, I thought I'd get found out whenever I got like in the reserves or the first team, and then it was England, and and we had this comment, and I said, you know, did you think? What did you think? And he went, I always knew, I always knew you'd make it. I always knew. In fact, so much so, and it reminds me, I was when I was um, when I was eleven, I passed the eleven plus, which was the you know, which you you've got to be a certain age to remember. You know? <laughs> and I passed the eleven plus, which meant I could go to a grammar school. Um, but in the time that I took the exam to the time of getting the results, we moved house and we moved just outside the city perimeters in Leicester, just to the place called Kirby Muxlow in the county. 
which meant I could only go to one school and that school was a rugby playing school. And, and my dad said, I, I can't, I can't let that happen. Um, we're going to move, we're going to move back into the city. We'd only been there six months or so. So we're going to move back into the city so that you can go to a football school. So it took obviously a time to find a house. Um, and in that interim period, I lived with my grandparents for 10 months um, and ate a lot of cake, a lot of cake. And yeah, so that enabling me to go to a grammar school, not just because it was a grammar school, but because it played football. Um, and I never thought twice about it. But, you know, when I think back now, I think, gosh, that's a hell of a, hell of a statement, a hell of a <laughs> move when a kid's 11 years old. He must have seen a lot more in me than I did. Yeah. Was, was it your main sport as a kid, like the one you really enjoyed competing the most? I love I love both football and cricket. Cricket. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, they, it wasn't one or the other. It was football in the winter and then cricket in the summer. But yeah, of course. Yeah, I loved, I loved both, and I, you know, I honestly thought I had more chance at cricket. Oh, really? Well. <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, I kind of captain Leicestershire schools right through. Mm. Um, you know, I was a batsman, and, and latterly I took to wicket keeping because I used to get broad fielding. Um, just wanted to get a bit more involved, but yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I was all right. I mean, I'll never know whether I would mm. made it or not, but. Um, um, but it was, I, I loved it. But once football's opportunity came along, cricket kind of took a back seat. Um, I still played it. I played it right throughout my career. Yeah. Um, you know, in the summer and stuff for the MCC and stuff like that. So, but um, yeah, I loved cricket. Yeah. Did any of your kids want to kind of get into football or was it kind of a bit difficult for them? Because they had, I guess, really big shoes to, to fill in terms of being Gary Lineker's sons. Well, they all played a, a little bit. I mean, George, George, <laughs> by his own admission, wasn't particularly talented, my oldest. Okay. In fact, he was always saying, though, was when he was a tiny little kid, he said, I'm going to be a footballer, I'm going to be a footballer when I grow up. And, yeah. and then we started playing and stuff. And I was, he was about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And one night, I put him to bed and he said, Dad, he said, I said, what? He said, I'm not going to be a footballer, am I? <laughs> I went, well, it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, Politely so, but, yeah, Harry, my middle two were pretty good players. Um, Angus was all right, my youngest, but my middle two, Harry and Tobias. Harry was, Harry had loads of ability, um, lots of talent and speed, and he could score goals and stuff. But he didn't, he never loved it enough. He, he'd mm. go to the Sunday some mornings and go, oh, I don't really want to play today, Dad. Fair enough. Um, and Tobias was on my number three was on Chelsea at Chelsea Academy for two or three years. He was a nice little footballer. Um, but he had that um, Osgood slatters on his knees, both knees. He couldn't play for about two years. And um, so that kind of did for him. But I think unless they're unbelievably talented and unbelievably good, it's better off they find another walk of life because <laughs> the comparisons would, would be would be very difficult for, for yeah. a long period of time. So I think it's fine. They're, the important thing is they're, they're, they're happy, they're good kids, they're nice people. Were you one of those parents on the touchline going shouting on a Sunday morning? I was one of those Ow. parents on the touchline that hated every other parent on the touchline. Oh, really? Or doing exactly that. It was one of my, it's my pet hate in life. I saw so yeah. many things that were... And 99% of what parents shout on the touchline is wrong. Mm -hmm. It's wrong. They're given the wrong information. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, they, they instill fear into their own children. They... Mm -hmm. they, they ramble a load of don't mess about booty it's like shut up mm. i never said a word when i watched on the touchline not a word um and i parents used to drive me absolutely to distraction they they don't know 
how damaging it is. I once saw a, a, a bloke run on. It was, it was like a five-a-side tournament that one of my boys played in. And then we got to the semi-final or something. And, and this father ran on the pitch to his own son, picked him up by the scruff of the neck, and was shaking him. It's not, it's not funny, but he's shaking him and saying, oh, you'll never make it if you play like this. And I'm thinking... Just- Mate, this kid is not going to make it anyway. Not in yeah. a million years. Just let him enjoy it. Yeah. Let him enjoy the game. I used to do my head in. I was yeah. so glad when they all finished school. I didn't have to put up with that anymore. Do you ever see the ones, I really feel sorry for the kids that have their, they're the goalie of the team and they have their dad standing behind that goal. <laughs> And, you, and, you, and you, you, you hear the dad like go talking about posture positioning and all this, and it's like the damage you must be doing to that kid as he's trying to play his goalie. Must I mean, be I, mean I know they do it. I know they do it with the best intentions, and they don't yeah. realise what they're doing. But it's you know they they're not helping. No. <laughs> they're not helping. Instilling no. fear into children is not is not great. They're not going to enjoy their sport. So when when you are noticing those those um sort of burnout warning signs, I guess like do you? Ha- I guess it's all about sort of self care and knowing what works for you to deal with that. So how do you sort of deal with those warning signs? Where you're like, oh, I'm st- this is things are starting to get a bit on top of me. Is there something that do you have like a routine or things that you know that really help you to sort of deal with that? Yeah, I mean, getting outside is the big thing for me. Is like making mm-hmm. sure I get outside. I'm such a Yorkshire girl. I love the country air. <laughs> and so I get outside when I can. But also I stop. I just stop and I go, no, yeah. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not doing it today. I'm not doing it. Yeah. So I, in past and when I was a lot younger, especially when you're starting out in the entertainment industry, you just keep going. And you just keep going mm-hmm. because you don't know where the next job's coming from. You've no idea what's next. And I've learned as I've got older that if you drop the ball, even for a day or two, nobody else is really, it's not really going to make much difference to anybody else's life. You feel like it will, but it actually won't. It's like if you stop and turned your phone off, if, if you told people and just said, oh, I'm just, um, if you can't get hold of me today, I'm just a bit busy doing X, Y, and Z, or I'm just taking a, a moment to myself. As long as you've let people know so they don't worry about you, then more, more often than not, I think that you... Um, you just need to listen to your body and you need to stop. That's that's it. That's the biggest thing I can say, really. And it's the biggest thing that I've learned because I found it so hard to do in the beginning. But, you know, with my own podcast, which I speak to kind of inspirational women and entrepreneurs and stuff. And one of the biggest things that I've learned is the women that are performing at the top always say they either outsource things or they take you know they might work um four days a week instead of doing the full seven days a week or they Mm -hmm. might just say right I'm not doing that now and that's the real key to having enough energy because you can't pour from an empty cup yeah no absolutely Uh, I suppose since post Emmerdale what what you've been doing really is you've been sort of more focused on your business so you're writing as well now Mm -hmm. and you're podcasting kind of let people know that perhaps aren't aware like what kind of things you're doing at the moment yeah I mean yeah like I said crikey I left Emmerdale feels to me such a like lifetime ago now because I went (laughs) straight back into theatre because that's kind of where my career started was in the Mm -hmm. theatre so I went straight back into the West End for a bit and then 
did a few other bits and bats kind of a touring and but then in 2018 so I'd been doing a lot of theatre for like three years post Emmerdale and then in 2018 my son was five then and it was the tour that really um really made me sit up again and go okay now we need to shift again because now he's at a different age and now different things are going Mm. on so for example he was at school then and he was struggling you know he was it was hard his mummy wasn't there and he he just needed that little bit of support and not to say that my husband wasn't giving him that he absolutely was but it just made me go actually now we're at a different milestone in Fred's life so now we change things up again and then and then that made me come home and really want to be at home and I think developing the business so that I could work more from home from my own house has been amazing really and more than anything that's what 2020 really proved to me was that I could work so easily from home and do the school run do pack lunches be there all the time and yet equally still be able to kind of fulfill my passions you know write um record podcasts do live streams from home you know we've we've written a a couple of other um television projects as well that we were able to do we did so much of the prep for it and so so much of the like development stages in on zoom so it was just like amazing really how yeah i think it's always good to kind of reassess where you are and just you know change things up to suit your family Like obviously we've got to go back to the love of dogs, I suppose. Like you, even as a child, you had candy, right? Like you had mm. the candy dog, and I mean, you. So you were like a, a dog lover from, you know, more or less your whole life, right? Like because it sounds like candy was a huge part of your childhood. Before that, even yeah. because Stella, that's the other thing Stella told me when she said Do you like dogs, and later she returned to the theme amidst all the the white noise of nothingness, and also my pain because uh, uh, the minute I met her, I thought, should I be here? Shouldn't I not be with my mum and dad? Am I being incredibly disloyal doing this? Then I felt disloyal to her. Then I felt disloyal to my mum and dad. Then I felt disloyal. And you're in this kind of maelstrom. It's a lifelong maelstrom. And, and she said there was a little dog called Toby when she was in the boarding house. This was the other thing she said. that um, There's a little dog called Toby, which was in the boarding house when she came over to Edinburgh and we were together for nine days and Toby took to guarding me when I was in the, on, in the bed and even jumping up on the bed and looking after me. And when I had my meltdown and I managed to get a psychiatrist to help me out and to help me through and to diagnose me, I, um, I, uh, I said to him, this, this dog Toby earlier on, is, would that mean it? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely, imprint, imprint from the earliest stage. So when I got at three months old, out of nine, nine days I left Stella, and three months old, out of the nursery place where babies were looked after, lying there in rows and rows and rows of cots. Um, and when I got home, and then when Candy arrived as a puppy, I think for my sister, because we didn't want her nose to be out of joint, um, I think that was kind of, oh, yeah, a dog in my little unconscious mind or subconscious mind. Hey, I, I know that. It's a dog. And then we, me and him were in, inseparable. We ate, um, didn't eat the same things, but we sniffed everything. Mm-hmm. 
everyone came in the house we sniffed them. yeah i love that quote in your book where you talk about um visitors coming around and you had to sort of both greet them as you know on all fours <laughs> sniffing their parts sometimes yes it wasn't great um and yeah so I, I, you know we were we were inseparable and that was a the most um uh, a most profound relationship of my childhood mm. yeah yeah no, I, I think with dogs like I can't think of like if someone said you can create something. I don't think I could create anything better than a dog. I don't. You know, I don't think you can top a dog. Like how you know? I, I I couldn't create anything better. That's just completely loyal. You know, completely. You know, could you top a dog? Like yeah, well we, maybe you can make the dog talk. Wouldn't that be great? But then would you want your dog to talk? You know, that's the third glass of wine you're having, Lawrence. So maybe you shouldn't put that away. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't think you can top a dog. <laughs> no, they're amazing. And my point is that, you know, wolves. The Euro- I mean, I think they're. They share a common ancestor with the Eurasian, the Eurasian wolf. And that's amazing. Just in, you know, I don't know how long it is. Is it maybe 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 years? Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what role has Maxwell had for you? Like, this, this, I guess, not only just with lockdown this last year, this COVID, but your own personal sort of mental health battles as well. Mm. Well, when I broke down, everything got on top of me. I wanted to save every single animal in the world. And I've been kind of on the front line, having meetings, going to parliament, demonstrations, speaking at demonstrations. I'd sit for hours and hours and hours on end watching stuff on uh, on YouTube and watching other stuff just in despair, just spiraling into the pits of despair. It became an obsession and a mania, a, a, a noble thing, but it just took me over. And then eventually it knocked me over and I was walking down Euston Road after working at Broadcasting House. And I was on my way to Manchester and I got to the bit of grass outside, which is now the taxi rank. And I just, I was all the way down from Broadcasting House. I was like, I, I was felt kind of disorientated and drunk on sadness. And then I collapsed on the ground and started weeping, you know, just uncontrollably. Um, I mean, I always, you know, had the ups and downs, the ups and downs, but that was a, a you know, a point. And I just thought, what's the, what is the point? What is the point? So I, my, I picked up my phone, which had fallen out, and I rang Tina, and then she said, she said, come home. She said, come home to, um, come home to me, come home to the girls, and come home to Maxwell. And we'll sort this out. So I thought, yes. Because the thing about coming home to Maxwell was I didn't have to explain. Like, you don't have to explain about that third glass of wine. I didn't have to articulate and and kind of find words and put them together. So because the human instinct is to say, what can I do for you? How are you feeling? What can I get you? Are you okay? What do you want to do? And you don't want to answer any of that stuff. You're beyond language because you're beyond despair. So you're you're beyond that sort of communication. You just don't want to, it's too, can't do it. But with him, you don't have to do it. He just knows. And I lay on the bed and I, I had that little tinkle of his collar. And he came up and he jumped on the bed 
and he put his head on my chest and his leg just below it and I felt this surge of warmth and of love and I know I know that he knew it was incredible and um it's it's actually it's not Disney actually it's Darwin because they have to know they can detect one molecule in a swimming pool their 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 olfactory senses are incredible and those senses involve smelling hormones and pheromones and knowing how every other pack man pack member is because that's a necessity for the good and fully functioning of the pack so he loves me we know that's a scientific fact because that's we, we get the same endorphin rush and the same chemicals when we connect as dogs do with each other. Um, but he knew how I was feeling and he wanted to help me. Yeah. And he did help me. I'm waiting to hear on some jobs at the moment. Okay. And on Saturday and Sunday, I know I'm not going to get a phone call. So actually I relaxed and was just like, right, just get on with life. And I woke up this morning going, oh, this is the day when I'm probably going to find out I didn't get those jobs. Oh, I'm not going to find out anything and it's just going to be awful. And I'm kind of going, just questioning why I do this stupid job. <laughs> <laughs> and I realised that actually one of the reasons I love doing theatre so there is, it's a completely different art form, it's a completely different high um, there's a different vibe, the status within the rooms is very different it, 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 they're almost incomparable in terms of um, um, qualities, in terms of TV and theatre but the one thing that I absolutely love about theatre is that you go to work every single day so in rehearsals, even if you're not, you know, not a massive part in it, generally you have to be there every single day. And it's a really intense period, the rehearsal period. And then you have to go and do the show eight times a week. You have something to do eight, well, six days um, of the week. And I've discovered today, my epiphany today is I just want to be an actor every day. I want to act every single day. I don't care what it's in. <laughs> I just want to act every single day. I, I've had quite a few jobs recently where um, I've been quite a good character in it, but we've been in like a 16-week shoot, and in that 16-week shoot, I've probably shot for 15 days, 20 days, like I had 15, 20 days of actual filming, and um, I hate it. <laughs> Most people want that kind of job where they get paid the same amount but they're in very, very little and they get more time at home. And I love my home. I love my house. I love my kids. I love everything. But I really like working. And I like, I think I'm really suited to the soaps. <laughs> because I just want to be in every day. I just want to be yeah. an actor every day. Yeah. I don't want to break. I'll have five weeks off a year, like normal people do. Week off at Christmas, couple of weeks in the summer and Easter. And then all the rest of the time, I'm really happy to go to work. Yeah. Well, how how old were you when you were on Corrie the first time? How old were you when you At uh, 16. That? 16 years old, yeah, wow. Yeah, 16. Yeah, yeah it just turned in, in the July and then I went into it, um, started filming it in the September and it went out um, on screen in the November. 
Yeah. Is that kind of the one thing that people, I mean, I guess that Waterloo Road, uh, cutting it, like uh, the, these are kind of things that you kind of like get the most. I can judge people's age by what they recognise me from. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so if someone recognises me from Corrit, yeah, that's it, exactly. You know, someone goes, oh, Coronation Street's like, oh, yeah, you're probably about, I don't know, 40, 40 and upwards. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then now my Waterloo, although Waterloo Road is like on iPlayer now so it's got a whole new audience so all my children so normally it would have been like 25 to 30s is that would be my Waterloo Road um audience who would stop me but now it's like all my friends um, my children's friends at school are all watching it so it's really hard now when you've got all your shows coming back on tv so it's harder yeah well, cutting it was been on something recently, hasn't it? Because I've been, exactly, I, yeah. I've so just, I, yeah, it, yeah, I've just discovered cutting it from the Overlock. <gasps> yeah, I've Did really you, enjoyed oh, it. No. I think it's really underrated. I've, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It, it was. I mean, I've got to say, when it came out, it was a phenomenon. It really, it really was so different to everything that was on at the time, um, and it was a, it was a massive success. And we did four series of it, and. I think by that point, like Sarah Parrish had, you know, needed to move on. And um, there was talk, actually, when we finished the fourth series, there was discussion about continuing it on. But then the people who commissioned it moved to a different channel and and it just kind of um, fell apart at that point. But it's the show that I get asked the most to... um, uh, to re... um, Reprise, is that the word? Yeah, Yeah. reprise, Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. People want more of it, but yeah, yeah, I don't think it ever will. Yeah. yeah. Has, has there been like a role or show that, you know, although you probably get Collator Street, Waterloo Road and, mm. and mentions a lot, is there one that you feel like as a performer, as a person that you've got the most from being involved in that experience? Yeah, there's um there's a couple. There's um I did a show in Canada called The Detail, which I just absolutely loved it was my perfect part i was playing american i was a cop i had a gun um, i was number one on the call sheet um it was all women it was a women writers female um uh, producers it was so exciting to film and so like hard work but good hard work um i wasn't i was scared but not in a in a oh my god i don't want to go to work way um i just absolutely loved it It was my perfect job if that job had have gone on and on for like 10 years i would have that would have been i would have been happy and i was in every single day oh amazing so it's ticking <laughs> the boxes day. yeah every it ticked every single box um so i love that but then also the job um the british job that i've done which i really flexed my um muscles my acting muscles in that i really enjoyed doing was a show called ordinary lies which um i was in the second series of and um i don't think it got particularly massive viewing figures um it was danny brocklehurst um wrote it It was a red production um but in terms of um enjoying playing the character and where I had to go um, as an actor, that was the role where I go, oh, that was my, that was the one, that was the one which I really loved and I'm really proud of the work that I did in it. Yeah, yeah amazing. Is there, is there anything that you've been binge watching or anything over over this year on TV or Netflix or anything like that? Loads. Oh my gosh, <laughs> absolutely loads. Um, so I've just finished The Crown. 
And oh, then yeah. I got my, dragged into watching Diana in my own words after watching The Crown, <laughs> uh, which is a documentary on Netflix. And I w- watched it yesterday afternoon and sobbing my heart out at the end of it. Hi, Lawrence. Hi, Eddie. How are you doing? Okay, sorry about the delay there. Just having to strap my... No, that's absolutely fine. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Shapes and Stories podcast. And how are you? How are you feeling? How, how's the the toe, the leg, um, the, the foot? How's it all feel? How's it all going? Toe is in a holding pattern on the left foot. The quad <laughs> is in a holding pattern. They're all kind of in holding patterns. They're not. Uh, they're not laughing. And every time we do get one bit goes better. The outside of the left right foot is just aching. I don't know. I don't know quite what it is, um, and uh, yeah, just exhaustion. You know, you start exhausted and you finish exhausted. Actually, you start the, the the marathon feeling kind of all right because you haven't been running for since I finished last night. But uh, you think, oh, I don't feel too bad. But as soon as you get going, you go, oh god, this again. And uh, so I found I have to walk to start off. I can't go straight into running it just well did you have a did you have a good um bit of a boost earlier today when you found out you've raised over a hundred thousand pounds that must have been a nice yeah, little that's feeling great. that's that's a wonderful nice thing to jump over that <laughs> so over a hundred thousand pounds was your hundred and fifteen thousand euros and about one hundred forty five thousand u s dollars so, yeah somewhere in that area so we're heading up towards one hundred and fifty grand now and uh, still got eleven or marathons to go and the people the way people do seem to donate towards the end it sort of ramps up Brilliant. rather alarming good alarming as opposed to bad alarming you just something goes my god where's this going for <laughs> it's like a round the world yacht race yeah. no one's really bothered in the middle no one really yeah 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 whatever towards the end they go my god is this happening <laughs> really happening and uh, and then everyone gets into it so yeah i struggle away and the gig at the end of the night, that's the yeah. curious thing. Never done that before. Well, I tried it a bit at the end of my February marathons, but um, I fall asleep in the middle of lines. It is very odd. And uh, I have to do a German show after this Saturday show when oh, I do it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know, I know. My third language, my virtual uh, my virtual marathon in for Berlin in, uh, in Germany. And then I do my show Alice auf Deutsch. Guten Abend, my downtown. Here is my show of Deutsch. And uh, there is a weird delight I get out of doing it in second and third languages because I sort of go out of body. Um, I talk about this thing of lists. So if you think about it, someone goes into comedy, you might expect, okay, they're stand-up. They get their stand-up career going. That's good. And then and even if you're not in comedy, you think, well, what comes next? Probably a sketch show. A sketch show or a panel game. And then you might get a sitcom, your own sitcom, and then comedy films. That's the list, you know, that's the going up the mountain. Yeah. There is, there is no left turn built into it where you start performing in French, German, and Spanish. <laughs> that is not there. And I yeah. decided to put it there. Uh, and you don't, when you start doing it, they don't care, you know, they don't say, oh, you're big, you're big in, in UK. Okay, we haven't heard about this. You have to get them all over again. You start all over again. Very humbling. It's a second language, so you're like a child. But 
the reward back is this ninja training in comedy. Mm -hmm. If you can do a show in French, if you can improvise in French or German and or German, then surely the English show is like easy peasy lemon squeezy compared to that. Yeah. So you've helped yourself in this very weird way. I like to liken it to running around the, you know, like the Olympic racetrack, any big racetrack. And there's the, in those longer races, there's people on the inside. Surely that's a shorter distance. And there's the people on the outside, and that's obviously a longer distance. And they start ahead, the people on the outside. But I like to imagine I'm starting behind or equal to the people on the inside. But I have to run an extra third as fast. I have to go faster, further than the people on the inside just to get to the straight and narrow. Yeah. That's a good training to do. That sounds it, yeah. Well, but you talk about your co your comedy there. Um, who, who were your sort of comedy influences growing up who you sort of looked up to? Um, oh, can I just say one quick thing? Oh, yeah, I, sure. I know it's in the middle of your podcast, but I'm saying it out to the world in general. You can snip <laughs> it out if you want. But I'm doing social media questions on my social media at 3.30. I forgot to mention this. <laughs> and that is on, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So 3.30 London time, I'll be taking your questions. Sorry, that's in the middle of that. That's absolutely now, fine. influences in comedy. Um, Monty Python are the big gods on Mount Olympus. Mm -hmm. They were, they were always, uh, well, they, they weren't necessarily the first I was watching. I, I do remember early Benny Hill was really quite out there. It could be quite out there. He did stuff on, on European. He could speak French. He was out there, but then they got stuck into, he was doing all the writing and the performing. And the Benny Hill, the women who would be dancing with it, it was all kind of a bit complex. So they all went kind of into a strange place there. So when I was younger, it was that, and it was the goodies and a number of comedic things, loved Morecambe and Wise. But when I, once I discovered Python, I sort of took off with that. And I discovered The Goons, which people in Britain will know is a radio comedy series from the 50s that hugely influenced Python. And I discovered them both at the same time. So I was buying, I was listening to uh, cassettes, um, audio of Python and audio of The Goons, which is uh, Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, Harry Seacomb, at the same time, which is quite a surreal injection. And... The difference is if people people want to, you know, my comedy say well, very influenced by Python, anyone who's in this kind of area I'm in, we might be considered more the alternative comedians, like alternative music, alternative bands. And what you've got to be to be our audience is you have to have already seen all the standard comedy that's going, all the here comes the joke and here's it, you know, in that, in that kind of standard way. And then you see that enough, you think, okay, that's great. But what else can we do with it? Mm -hmm. All the alternative comedians and alternative musicians and the independent filmmakers, we're all we're, called, we're playing with the medium. We're playing with the whole thing. And, uh, and it leaves some mainstream audiences just don't know what the hell we're doing. But I love it because it's so weird. Python is very silly, but also very intelligent behind the silliness. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what... I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, with comedy now, do you have to like ever work when you're sort of writing or thinking of coming up with material? Do you do you have to do you worry about offending anyone now? Because I think we're like in a transition where you kind of see, you know, for Little Britain, for example, that got kicked off Netflix because people complaining and stuff. Do you ever have those worries when about offending anyone with your writing? Well, if, 
I don't know if you if, if you've tracked my comedy much, but I will. I'm offending Hitler, <laughs> Nazi, extreme right wing people. Yeah, I'm happy to do that because they are. If you add up, say, all the people in the Nazi high command, that's not a huge amount of people, but they were a power minority. Power minorities, the monarchy as well. General monarchy, I say the monarchy in our country, you'll be judged by what you do in life. I think Charles has done good stuff. I think uh, William and Harry have done good stuff. And I, I look at it that hereditary privilege, obviously a very bad example to our children. So I'm against that. So I will talk about that. But I don't go in and say, somebody suffering from cancer, my mum died of cancer. Why would I take, uh, make fun of those people? Why would I make fun of black people, uh, other minorities, LGBT people? I'm T of the LGBT. So it's, it's having a positive attitude. They talk about political correctness. That is a censorship kind of idea. It's actually worded wrong. It should be called positive attitude. Have a positive attitude in your comedy. And if you are saying things which is inspiring hate against a powerless minority group or less powerful minority groups, um, that's just not good and it is bordering into hate crimes. Yeah. So, so is it a bit like punching up rather than punching down, I guess? Yeah, you know, it's certain people are minorities, you know, it's the super rich. <laughs> the super rich have a go as much as you want. They got all this money, they are a minority, but they are a powerful minority. So I think it's the articulation of what the problem is there. And if you say, well, you, you need the right to be able to say anything, which is the freedom of speech idea, I understand that, but we also have hate crime. So if you're inciting hatred, if you're saying, here's an idea, and I encourage, it, it does encourage people to think, I'm giving you permission, here's me hating and, and, and making fun of a group of a, in a less powerful position, and have been had, had that done throughout centuries, if not millennia, and it encourages other people. I thought I wasn't supposed to be racist and sexist anymore. So let's go back in and do that again. Trump did that. Trump gave permission for people to be racist and sexist again. And uh, they talk about disenfranchisement. And you think, what is the franchise? The franchise is society. And some people have disenfranchised themselves by insisting on being racist and sexist. I'm not really talking about uh, performing here. I'm just talking about in life. Mm -hmm. They still want to be racist, still want to be sexist. They want to be white supremacists. That is not part of society. And you have moved into the area of hate crimes, inciting hatred, encouraging violence, or the threat of violence against people. And I am against that. So when you are competing in the Olympics and you're, you're lining up just about to, to start your um, event, are you, do you, are you just kind of in game mode? Are you aware that the whole world is watching me? Or, is it, or do you just not allow yourself to think that in, in, your, in your head? You don't even entertain it. And I know that yeah. sounds really bizarre because everyone's like, how could you not? And everything mm -hmm. else. Like some athletes, to be fair, look up to the crowd and really um, use the crowd. I don't even look up. I'm like, I don't even like to look at the crowd because not only if you, if I look up to the crowd and see 17,000 people, that would probably terrify me. But then you start thinking how many people are watching on telly and et cetera, et cetera. But for me, I don't even look up because I'm like, I've got to just stay focused. I only look at the pool. I just look at my lane, what I've got to do, because it doesn't matter who's watching. Like mm -hmm. I've got to perform. I've got a job to do. You're so focused on that and you're so 
um, in the zone, if you like, that you just, I don't even listen to music. Most athletes, you see them with the headphones on, yeah, listen to yeah, music. Absolutely. I don't even do that because I'm like, <laughs> I, I switch off too easy. I'm one of those that I'll start singing and dancing and forget where I am. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have to stay really, really focused um, and kind of that really narrow, t- like tunnel vision almost and just kind of really stay in that mentality. Um, but obviously after your race, of course you can look up. Of course, like that's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the time that it's like, oh my gosh. And like you look at the crowd and when you're, obviously because the Olympics is over two weeks, you get an opportunity to just be a fan and you just sit there in the stands and cheer along with people and sing national anthems and do all that. You get to be a fan um, at other points, just not when you're competing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you have so any superstitions at all when, when you were competing that you sort of really wanted to stick by all the time? I haven't got like specific things in that way, but I'm really funny with numbers, like numbers are my thing. So it's quite broad, but it's things like if I was listening to something, the volume has to be on an even number. Like I like even numbers. So I was more weird about that sort of stuff. Like um, how many times I did something or the volume or TV volume had to be on a certain, like an even number or things like that rather than... um, I wouldn't ever wake up on an odd number. I wouldn't set my alarm on an odd number, for example. It was things like okay. that that I was a bit weird about, um, rather than like, I'm not like Nadal who has to bounce the ball so many times <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. There's nothing really you can do in swimming that's like replicates that because obviously we don't have any equipment or anything or whatever that you use. So it's just, yeah, p- preparation, I guess, as well. Like the amount of times your goggles and hat or costume or something can happen. So always having spares and just things like that. Normal stuff, I think. I refer to you as the BFG, Britain's friendliest guy. You know, just, <laughs> just putting it out there. Uh, but, I mean, how do you... Because your Twitter's always really refreshing to go on. And, you know, it's really full of positivity, full of really nice messages. I mean, how do you... Is there a way... I mean, I'm sure we all get our bad days, but is there a way that you kind of make sure that positivity, you know, is, is something, that energy of positivity is something that you that you keep with you? Yeah, I try to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess... Um, yeah, I mean, particularly on social media, it's always such a it's such a horrible place sometimes, isn't it? And I think I really like, enjoy using those platforms. And so I don't want to be deterred by sort of like the, the sort of the nasty and darker sides of them. I'm, you know, I was trying to put something a bit ni- nicer out there. Um, and, and yeah, and obviously I, I try and promote kindness and positivity where I can. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I, I've been someone, you know, who's had quite sort of difficult moments in my own life during, you know, when I was younger and stuff and uh and so kindness for me and and being kind and connecting i think more than that sort of connecting with other people has always been at the forefront of my life and trying to make sure that um yeah i mean at the end of the day we are as human beings we are all in this together to a certain extent and so i think sometimes it's a bit dog eat dog out there and um so i think you know it's right of us to sort of kind of really just be a bit more considerate of one another. And I suppose that's kind of a big part of my, um, and my outlook, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I think there's just not, you know, um, as I, I guess as a species, as a humans, we, we kind of need to, to try and, and be nice and be kind. I mean, it's something that's not really 
taught I mean you can't really teach that so much I mean you might learn sort of lessons at schools and in the office there's like a code of conduct that you might have to sort of mm-hmm. maintain by but you know there's I mean it's it's something that's so easy to do it makes you feel so good to do it and I think it's just something that we take it's it's, it's underrated isn't it it's so um you know it's uh, such a nice thing to be able to, to do and just like whether it be helping that woman on the underground with a pram or something like that you know when I've been feeling rubbish and just a quick act of kindness can make you feel really good and I think sometimes there's nothing wrong with just saying you know what I feel good because I helped that person out or because I sent that positive treat to someone that's having a having a bad day I, I think you know sometimes we just got a I don't know if people worry about it sounding cheesy or, or things like that, about mm. just being kind and nice. And they're that kind of, especially as men, I think as well, there's kind of this um, sort of, uh, what is it, toxic masculinity thing that we all have to deal with, where it's like, oh no, we kind of have to be macho and, and things like this. Um, so no, I think it's really interesting what you do on social media. Oh, well, thank you. No, I mean, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think, you know, we, I think social media in a way has also allowed us to have more open conversations. You know, people come forward and, you know, they do are starting to express when they have bad days, you know, and it's, it is okay not to be okay. You know, we obviously hear that quite a lot, but, and it is okay to express those things and actually, you know, empathize with other people and, and, and put stuff out there that other people might empathize with themselves. You know, if they're having a bad, like you say, you're having a bad day or something. Um, I think it's really reassuring to hear other people and to know that you're not alone. You know, I think that's the thing we, sometimes we get caught up in our own things and we think that it's just just us that's having that bad situation that bad day so it's just knowing that there are lots of people having bad you know and particularly at the moment where it's been very challenging for everybody i think um this year really important for us to connect with those and reach out to each other and sort of just say look it's okay you you know you matter you're not alone and and you know we're here for you and you and hopefully you're there for us when we need it as well so yeah So I set up Breck Foundation, well, the idea of it, about six years ago with a group of volunteers, mostly moms from the neighborhood, because what happened was, is my son Breck was groomed online by friends that he gamed with at school, and a predator was running the gaming group, but no one considered him to be a predator because he was only a teenager like them. He was only 17 years old at the time, and over the course of a year, when Breck was groomed, manipulated, uh, controlled, isolated from friends and family, just really brainwashed, he then believed what the groomer was saying. And the groomer was catfishing, promising the world, teaching the boys to code and encrypt, having a fun time gaming, enjoying the gaming and working together as a team, and eventually turned him against me. And Breck was then lured to the predator's flat, where sadly he was. Um, sadistically and sexually murdered and really as a parent the hardest thing in in your entire life is to lose a child I mean any parent you know that's just the wrong order of things to happen and then to happen in such sort of a, a violent and horrific way so as I sort of learned more about what had happened in the background um of what the predator was saying to Breck and how that all played out, I realized that I needed to share that learning and awareness. And that's when I came up with the idea of the charity because I wanted something good to come out of it. I was aware that Breck was being groomed. I talked to Breck himself, but he couldn't see it. He was enjoying the fun he was having within the gaming group. Um, I talked to t- teachers and support staff, other parents, school vicars, school nurse, um, 
but people, school librarian people didn't think that Breck was the type of boy that would be groomed. He was a 14-year-old, everyday schoolboy who had friends, who did well in school. He got on with it. He wasn't a problem child. He was just, you know, a kid. And so nobody thought that he would be able to be groomed. And even when I reported to police, they didn't believe me. So sadly, this predator had a record, uh, quite a long record of, of crimes committed, and he was able to lure Breck. So um, we started off with the charity talking about awareness, and then now we educate uh, children and parents and teachers and police and safeguarding leads, anyone who has anything to do with the child. and. Um, you know, we, we now speak at conferences and, and schools, any training sessions, but really it's more now about empowering young people to make safer choices for themselves. Because, you know, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, they do have to have independence at some point. They do need to be able to look after themselves. So we try to teach them to recognize the signs of grooming and we try to talk to them about what a healthy relationship looks like versus you know what it might feel like to be befriended online through grooming yeah and, and so sort of rewinding a little bit back to to breck um what were the, the first sort of uh warnings because obviously you know kids are you know really into their video games yeah. more, now more than ever especially you know when we have lockdowns and things like that we play you know cause it's, it's the way they're communicating with friends you know at the end of the day especially especially more so than ever now whether it be on their um, computers or um, in social media or video games and things like that what were the first warning signs for you when you that you noticed something that was when you noticed something wasn't right well um, Breck was an avid gamer and he loved computing and science and technology. I mean, he was amazing at, you know, only 10 years old. He could do, you know, oodles more than I would ever dream of doing within technology. So that was, you know, what he wanted to study. He wanted to be a pilot. He wanted to work in technology. So when he spent time gaming, I could hear what was going on. The door was open. He'd have his headphones on sometimes, but other times he'd just be in his room and I could hear him laughing and joking. And one day I noticed that he was speaking to someone who sounded older. Well, this was one of the parts of the story that's kind of important. I assumed the stereotypical idea of a, a groomer or a predator was a creepy old guy, because often we see that on the news. So when my first instinct was that this was a creepy old guy, that sort of almost alienated Breck because he knew that the predator was only a teenager like him, albeit a few years older. But I was wrong about guessing he was older. It was because he was controlling and manipulative. I could hear him telling the boys what to do. I could hear him being in charge. I could hear him, you know, having all the control over the group. I tried to get to know him. He had actually a fake uh, avatar at first of, uh, of a 14 year old boy. And I found out later that that picture that he used was actually the 14 year old boy that he had sexually assaulted three years before. So uh, he was pretending to be the boy that he assaulted, um, but he was easy to talk to, well-spoken. I, you know, the boys would be having a laugh. Funny things would pop up on the screen. You know, I was like, wow, you guys are quick. And I could understand why Breck wanted to spend time online within this group. It was fun, engaging, and, and I, could, I got it. But as time went on, I noticed changes in Breck's personality. 
he became sort of stroppier, which was difficult as parents will know that teenagers do get stroppy. I bet you never did, mm-hmm. Lawrence. Did you ever get stroppy? No, I, I was always an angel. <laughs> I was always an angel. Yeah, so mm. he just got you know, a little bit more rude, a little bit more edgy. And I thought, well, is this, you know, being an older teenager or is this something more sinister? But he started changing the way he thought as well. And with grooming, you know, the thought process, the predator was just changing his value system and and the way he thought on everything. So, you know, Breck all of a sudden was against a religion, you know, and I, I get that now. But at the time we did go to church. And so the predator was pulling him away from from religion. He was pulling him away from education. Breck had always wanted to pursue technology and go to university or become a pilot. And all of a sudden the predator was saying, you don't need to go to school I'll teach you everything you know. You need to know. I've got this, you know, lucrative contract uh, business in the U.S. in New York City. So he pretended to be this really wealthy businessman that he was going to help Breck with contacts and get him, a, you know, a career. Um, so he was turning him against, against education. He was turning him against governments. Now, funnily enough, we're recording this the day we're waiting to hear election results in the U.S. <laughs> but he was turning Breck against both, you know, governments, UK and US, and just really kind of being like, I don't know, anarchist. It just it just happened all so suddenly that Breck was just being turned against anything that was established. Even his air cadet group, which he had joined and enjoyed the predator, made it seem like that was a waste of time and not worthwhile. And he was pulling Breck away from all of his usual activities, isolating him from family and friends. And I saw these signs. I hadn't been taught about grooming, but I had heard about it. And at the time in the news, there were a lot of stories about the poor girls that were groomed in Rochdale and Rotherham. And all those inquiries were happening. They had to do with, you know, gangs and drugs and sex and, you know, poor girls being given food and presents and, and, you know, then turned into, you know, complete being, being exploited. So that's what people thought grooming was. And the thing is, is there's different versions of grooming and Breck was being groomed, but people didn't believe it because he was a boy. Well, boys can be groomed too. I think it's about a third of grooming cases are actually boys. Um, And there are different reasons for grooming. And originally I thought maybe the predator wanted to do something sexually with Breck. I didn't even know the real vocabulary, you know, sexual exploitation. And I thought maybe he wanted to exchange naked photos or live stream sex acts. And police find children of primary school are performing sex acts in, in their rooms on live streams and different apps, not even knowing they're do, doing something wrong. You know, I thought maybe that's what he wanted or maybe to meet up for something sexual. That was my first, you know, sort of concern. And whilst I didn't care if Breck or any of his friends were gay, what I didn't want uh, was for someone to push their sexuality onto the boys before they were ready yeah, to decide for themselves. You know, that's our personal choice, what we do with our bodies. And I felt, well, and to back up, the picture that he showed initially of who he was, was a very sort of effeminate picture, which is absolutely fine. But I felt like he was trying to send a sign or a signal, hey, guys, I'm gay, or you too. So whilst I didn't know about any of the boys' sexuality, because Breck was kind of too into gaming to be into girls or boys. He was just enjoying, you know, being a teenager. I didn't want that pushed onto them. As time went on, I thought he was radicalizing them. You know, and when you think about if Breck had been radicalized for terrorism, you know, more than just Breck would have been hurt. This could have been even a, you know, a wider issue mm-hmm. because he was turning them against everything established and they um, played violent games even though Breck was never violent within himself, 
they were playing violent games, which I didn't love. Um, you know, there wasn't, I didn't allow swearing, but there was constant killing in these violent games. And I thought, well, maybe he's going to throw some weapons into their hands and say, guys, let's go do the real thing. Because this predator happened to be very black and white on his opinions. And, and you know, if you didn't believe what he thought, then your opinion was worthless. And he was against all sorts of, you know, different cultural things, religious things, governmental things. So I, when I called the police, I was convinced that they were being radicalized. And I said over and over again, I think they're being groomed for something to do with radicalization. Unfortunately, my police force at the time hadn't, I believe, hadn't properly trained their staff to recognize these signs of grooming. And they didn't know what questions to ask. Um, three times I mentioned grooming and they said they would check the police records three times. But in the end, they didn't check those records. And if they had, they would have seen that he was known to police. So there's learning across the board from parents, you know, myself included, teachers. I went to Breck's teachers. Um, I said I was worried that I couldn't get him off the computer, that I, I was worried his schoolwork was going to um, drop. And I was worried about, you know, his online relationships. And they just, everybody brushed it off and said, well, all kids are online too much, you know, and especially, as you mentioned, during the pandemic, we were all online more than usual because mm -hmm. we have to be. So I think, you know, it's a perfect storm for predators during this time when children are spending more time online because they will be lonely. They do want to be befriended. All of us want to have, you know, that interaction that makes us laugh or makes us feel good. And so, um, you know, teachers didn't take it as a problem because Breck wasn't acting up in school. He was still performing at school. But afterwards, they did say we noticed that he stopped raising his hand. He stopped talking in class. He stopped engaging with the subjects. That was a sign of grooming. But because he wasn't presented as a vulnerable child, they didn't pick up on it at the time. Uh, a lot of people just said, oh, my son games all the time. That's what they do. I just couldn't get anybody on side, even the parents of the other gamers. They said, oh, the boys have been gaming with him for years. And I said, does that make it safe? And I said, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you know, I started talking about the stories. This guy's saying he you know, works in New York City and he's supposedly 18 years old now and he makes all this money. And what's his, you know, he's against, um, you know, all religions and different governments. And, you know, what, what, is, what does he want with our boys? You know, what? And the other parents weren't aware of this because Breck was really open with me. Uh, and as I said, I had met the predator in Breck's room, you know, asking questions. He never seemed to be living in New York. He never seemed to be on U.S. time zone. And, uh, you know, I just I just instinctively as a parent, it just didn't feel right. When I've watched, you know, your, your show on TV and some of the people you get in there, I, I get a bit shocked by how some of them just behave with their mannerisms and their, you know, the, not doing themselves any favours from the get-go, I feel sometimes. Does that shock you when people are just kind of that arrogant about it, I suppose? I'm totally unshockable. Okay. I mean, I really think, and I think that's learned. I, I think you're either, you've got a predisposition, like, you know, grow up in a in a family where, there was, uh, you know, it was a, a, a loving, unconditionally loving family, which of course is the ultimate privilege, but where people meant what they said and said what they meant. Mm -hmm. um, and then practiced, you know, law um, 
for uh, close to well, now for two decades, but you know, over a decade of dealing with serious cases, including murder cases, um, saw a good deal of the evidence in international criminal cases, including genocide. And after a while, you become inured to people's behaviour and that sort of thing. Yeah. Very often, the type of behaviour you're talking about is are forms of emotional display. And which is a slightly overblown way of describing, you know, people get really angry. Mm-hmm. And in some, some of the cases that you're referring to, it'll be the first time that a family member uh, will have seen the other person that's caused them real pain for a really long time. And they may not have uh, the emotional range. They may not be as articulate as you and me, but they're really cross. <laughs> really angry and that anger isn't directed at me it's because every single fiber of their being is triggered by seeing that other person and the pain that they've been caused and actually I understand sometimes people perhaps uh, uh, have concerns about my show and have expressed them they never do when they watch it regularly or come and watch it live because what I'm trying to do is never to send anybody up um, I'm not just mindful, the centre of it all is the dignity of all the parties, mm-hmm. but to provide the person you're talking about with a chance to be forced to hear the other person and ultimately them to hear each other, which is different from listening. Yeah. And you've got to, you know, the Lord or whomever, evolution gave us two ears and one gob for a reason. Mm-hmm. And it often changes the entire complexion of the conversation. So they might be really angry at the beginning, and by the end of that time together, if they've taken the gift, the chance to hear how upset their actions have made the other person and vice versa, it genuinely has the power to transform that situation. It's never or rarely about the content of the money or the, the dispute. Of course, that matters. It's about all of the kind of emotional complexion, all of the other issues that that money, that that breakdown in trust is represented. And that's why they're really angry. And it's true, regardless of your background, who you are, that's what happens, you get really... Yeah, do you feel that um, tension sometimes when you walk in, like between the two people, can you feel that? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, but there's never a moment when I shut the door and think, would this be funny for telly? Yeah. Lawrence, you remember that um, I take every case deeply seriously, whether it's a case about a, a shitting goat. Um, the dog wedding as well. The dog wedding, uh, yeah. yeah, a lasso actor and a Randy Shih Tzu, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm more about that in a second. Um, but in a case, in a day, we'll have eight cases, let's say. Two of them might be those, you know, silly ones on the face of it. Although silly ones can be the most difficult legally. <laughs> really very difficult. Um, and six of them will be exactly as I've described, you know, families in crisis, people who have broken down years of um, a challenging relationship, often through a history of personal abuse, often through substance abuse, often in addiction, in all sorts of crisis situations, loss of homes, you know, toxic breakdown involving custody, etc. And you'll only see 10 minutes, perhaps, of a case that lasted now, and I have to give full judgment. So there's never a moment when the door slams behind, slams behind me when I'm doing the Judge Rinder show, um, that I'm doing the Judge Rinder show. It's a court case. Hmm. Um, and I care profoundly about that. I think part of the reason I haven't been eviscerated by my colleagues, other than the fact that I did serious work, 
uh, was fairly well respected before ending up in this odd situation I find myself in on Judge Rudnett. Um, I care passionately about the integrity of the law and of the court. Um, and I'm mindful more than anything else, and not just mindful, model the fact that every single person gets treated with dignity. And from time to time, that course might involve me going, oh, you're stupid or something like that. But <laughs> anybody needs to be aware that I would say the same thing. And I used to say the same thing to my extremely well-paying oligarch clients. Or when I was doing international cases, you know, there's, uh, you don't get treated different by me by virtue of, you know, the size of what's in your wallet. Mm -hmm. what, what matters in life is what you do, not who you are. Okay, guys, um, there we have it. End of series three. We'll be back in September. Enjoy your summer break. Let's hope for normality. You know, let's, you know, let's be positive. I know it's been really hard to be positive over the last 18 months, but, you know, let's, let's hope that, um, you know, good times are ahead and we can all be together again. Um, thank you to everyone that's been listening. Um, thank you to everyone that's been on the show. Big thank you to Giles again for being this amazing producer that we've had on the show. Um, and I can't wait to be back bringing you more episodes. It's been an absolute pleasure. And like I say, please um, be sure to follow us on YouTube. You can find out, um, you can find all our videos on there. The Shapes of Stories on pod, um, the Shapes of Stories podcast. Just type that in on YouTube or type in Lawrence Prestige and you'll find out all our stuff on YouTube as well. We might do a few special episodes on, on YouTube now and again. Um, yeah, maybe just a few little vlogs and giving you updates. And be sure to follow us on our social media pages at Shapes of Stories on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook as well, um, the Shapes of Stories, our Facebook page. Um, but guys, thanks again. And um, yeah, really looking forward to bringing you more episodes in the future. Enjoy your summer. Um, take care, be safe. And yeah, see you again very soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>